0: This episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is brought to you by Maestro Classics, the creators of Stories in Music, a fun recorded series made for children and families to discover the thrill of classical music together. Featuring the London Philharmonic Orchestra, Maestro Classics brings over a dozen exciting stories to life with the help of a narrator and colorfully illustrated booklets. The Maestro Classics Stories in Music has won over 50 national awards, and garnered praise from parents, grandparents, teachers, and children alike. All Maestro Classics CDs are available at the Met Opera Shop at Lincoln Center and online at metoperashop.org. To learn more, visit maestroclassics.com.
1: Religious themes and texts have long been a foundation of classical music. On this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we'll discover the many ways in which opera and religion are coming together this season.
0: The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org.
1: This season on the Met stage, Tosca, Dialogues of the Carmelites, Angelica, and the Pearl Fishers are just a few of the operas exploring faith and the power of the divine. I'm your host, Naomi Barratera. On this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, lecturer Desiree Mays discusses the treatment of religion in opera throughout history.
2: Good morning, all of you. Welcome. Um, it's great to have you here. It's great to be here in New York uh, with the sun shining. That's really nice. So um, I'd actually title this talk, The Role of a Religion in Opera, rather than just religion in opera. And we'll get to the subtleties of this as we go through the program this morning. Um, we have a lot of ground to cover. It's an exciting topic, and uh, I've been excited about it for months. So the hard part was what to cut off and not include, and you will call me on that down the end. Why didn't I talk about A, B, and C? The Devil and Kate, for instance. For those of you who know that opera it was not on the final cut. So today I'm going to start in <coughs> good Met style with an opera quiz, okay? Okay. And we are going to have, I'm going to have you recognize or tell me which, um, which, what, uh, identify the cut and then tell me what the connect is with religion. May I have number one please, Stuart? <laughs> Okay, the opera is Madame Butterfly. The Okami is the Shinto gods that she's praying to. So that's the connect here with religion and Madame Butterfly. Let's try the next one. And that is from Faust, who wants to connect? This is the devil, right. That's devilish laughter. I thought that would get laughed this morning for a thing. Uh, that particular devil was Nikolai Guarov. Uh, uh, this one next. <laughs> And that is Aida, of course. The temple, that's right, the Temple of Vulcan. It's the consecration of um, Radames before he goes to war. And they sing Imenso Fetar. That's the, the Egyptian god. I always find this a little interesting because he, the prayer, the ceremony is to an Egyptian deity. But it's in the Temple of Vulcan, which was a Roman setup. <laughs> so that was interesting. Let's try the next one. dialogue of the Carmelites and (coughs) exactly that's the sound of the guillotine coming down that really stops you in your tracks and we are going to talk a little bit more about that later but that that is an opera that demonstrates martyrdom I'm going to look at different aspects of religion and opera this is straight martyrdom, the, uh, the, the, the going to the guillotine of the nuns from Compagna at the time of the French Revolution, uh, sacrifice, and also prayer. Prayer, martyrdom, sacrifice are all components of this connect we're going to talk about. Uh, how about this one? That is from Parsifal, and that music still makes my hair stand on end. I mean, if I played that all day, every day, I'd be in an incredibly altered state. It would be, be great. So, so that's about redemption, of course, another big topic in this whole area. And then it turns out that um, religion didn't just influence opera. It influences all kinds of music. So that gives you a little sense of the sort of the scope I'm going to look at this morning, the different ways in which the roles that our religion plays in opera. And then to start, I'd like to play you a clip from an interview I did with Harry Bickett with the conductor. It was almost as if he knew about what I was going to talk about here and the way he addressed this subject. It turns out before he became a great opera conductor, he's probably renowned now for his conducting of Baroque operas, he's been here many times, um, he he was the organist at Westminster Abbey when he was a young man. He was playing the organ for the various rituals there. And this is what he had to say on this subject. It, it's amazing how apropos of our meeting this morning this was.
3: You work in a place like Westminster Abbey, and it's like the... Best operatic set you've ever seen. <laughs> 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 let's do Tosca. Let's do Let's do Don Carlo. You know, I mean, it's an amazing thing. You're up in this huge organ loft. You know, the sound just emanates from the darkness. Uh, the, the choir procession with the clergy and all the crosses and. We didn't have incense, but you might as well have done. Uh, you know, there's a big theatre to it. And, you know, we used to have to do, obviously, a lot of the royal family used to come along. And I remember, <laughs> she never quite understood what we did, I don't think. Um, and they, they, I remember once the, the Queen Mother came and she was so slow coming up the aisle I had to improvise a sort of big march <laughs> and I could see in the camera and she kept on stopping and talking to me. <laughs> this is not to last like you know like three minutes and 15 minutes later she hadn't come and entered under the uh, under the crossing and eventually she got to her thing and I said like, oh god that was a lot longer than I thought and um, and at the service, the dean said to me oh that was so wonderful he said it was amazing how the Queen Mother got to her seat just as your- <laughs> <laughs> I thought, I'm not going to explain to you. <laughs> uh, and the other thing, actually, when I left the, uh, the Abbey and went to uh, English National Opera, which was where I first saw working in opera, I, when I was interviewed, I, someone said to me, well, then the, the Mark Elder, who was then the, the, uh, the music director, said, so, you know, how do you think your experience as someone like Westminster Abbey is remotely going to help you in an opera house yeah. with all these divas? <laughs> <laughs> and he alleges I said this, but I don't remember, because uh, he always tells the story. But apparently I said, well having worked in the upper, lo- upper echelons of the Church of England, <laughs> I can assure you that divas hold no fear for <laughs> so if if I can If I can work in that environment, then an opera house is going to be really, really easy. And to a certain extent, you know, it is true and that there are a lot of similarities, I think, about the theatre of that and the, th- the how you create atmosphere with music, which is basically what we're doing in opera. We're trying to tell stories um, and something as simple as a, as a, as a procession of people uh, arriving from the distance. So you start quite softly and, 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 and with some kind of portentousness, if you like, and then as the, the procession becomes closer and nearer to view, there's a kind of a building attention as they cross under. The great, uh, the great choir screen of Westminster Abbey into the choir, where there's a new kind of light, an image. You you build that so that so that it, it's theatre. And then, as they get to their seats, you calm down, and, you, and you've already just created in in, in in a procession, a silent procession, a moment of theatre.
2: Did you, did you follow that, how he makes the com- wonderful comparison of how the, the ritual, the ceremony of church, in this case Westminster Abbey, could be opera? Music, singing, costumes, lighting sets apply to both. They are both truly Gesamtkunstwerkes, complete works of art, whichever way you look at it. Opera and church events are aligned from the moment we walk into those respective buildings and walk down the aisles to find our seats in rows or pews facing the altar or the stage. I'm sure you never thought of it in those terms. The players in both rituals wear special clothes. We watch the procession, hear the music and singing, gaze at the sets, whether it be of statues, paintings, stained-glass windows with candles, or depicting a scene about a story, biblical or otherwise, which will be played out before us. We even use the word audience in both cases. In the theatre, we are the audience. If you talk to a bishop or a pope, you have an audience with them or with royalty. Everything begins with a call to prayer, or in a performance with the overture or the prelude. Already a sense of community exists as the assembled group prepares to share the experience about to begin. So today I'm going to talk about the many different facets of the role of religion in opera, and we'll probably only scratch the surface. That's why I welcome input from you later on. This is a vast topic and one that has been actually very little studied. But first, a couple of disclaimers. Today's discussion assumes that most people belong to one religious faith or another, and if not now, then in the past. We all of us, I think, have an understanding of religion from our childhoods, from the world around us, in terms of history, the stories that are told in literature and poetry, even in movies. So we can't say that religion doesn't exist. If you are not a believer in any faith, then you will only have to deal with half of the equation today, but I think it will be interesting. Also today, I will not talk of God or spirituality per se, but rather focus on religion in opera. Some may see these topics as intimately connected, of course they have to be, Um, but others may see no connection whatsoever, and let's talk about that. In trying to sort out the vast amount of material in which religion was and is connected with opera, I came up with a number of headings and think this approach might work. So the headings are ritual, miracles, prayer, martyrdom. I'll start with pagan subjects and then move on to Christian and Jewish topics as they describe biblical events. There are stories of devils and angels, of truly holy people and some who are not so holy. And what of contemporary opera? Does it reflect religious values and teachings? And if so, what are these operas? We could even talk of the role of instruments in this context. There's plenty of crossover between harps and organs, bells, drums, but we probably won't get to that today. Then there are the bigger issues on which religious doctrine rests. Issues of temptation, sacrifice, redemption, salvation, and let's add compassion to that list, how are they explored in opera? But first, let's go back to the beginnings of opera, the early days of popes and churches as they impacted and influenced the art form that we love. Opera can be said to have three major roots. The Camerati, who were the noblemen of Florence in the 16th century, who wanted to recreate Greek drama with musical accompaniment. It was simple, simply chords, but that's where it started. The Commedia dell'arte, or street theater, the comedy of the people from the 14th to 18th centuries, was a second line. The third opera, which formed, the form of opera, which is really a root as deep as the others, finds itself in religion itself. People since time immemorial have worshipped, with song and dance, with chanting and drumming. So it was a natural step for the Christian church to reenact biblical stories, to inform their congregations, many of whom could not read or write, but they got stories and visually they could understand. They would inform their congregations of moral values and how to live their lives. And this was done in the recreation of biblical tales. This approach lent itself, of course, very well to theatrical and artistic interpretation. Starting in the 5th century, the mystery or miracle plays were performed on religious topics in churches or on the church steps across Europe. These plays existed between the ninth and 16th centuries. The early Christian church actually used real actors from the craft guilds to act out their liturgical dramas and mystery plays. In 1667, Pope Clement, a member of the wealthy, influential Barberini family in Rome, actually composed an opera on St. Alexis, an opera that played in his family home, the Barberini Palace. This play-acting served the intentions of the church well, until it was felt the plays were becoming immoral, secular, far too sexy, and often missing the liturgical point, so to speak. So gradually the plays were moved off the church steps into the marketplace and theaters. And this combined pretty well with the move of opera, the opera of the Camerati, the Florentines, away from their palaces and stately mansions into theaters where people could attend. After expressing dissatisfaction with church plays, The hierarchy of the church then banned women from singing in church. Women, they decreed, were far too distracting and inappropriate, and they were replaced with castrati. (laughs) This move meant the church turned a blind eye to the cruel surgery that was required to maintain a childlike, albeit angelic soprano voice in a grown man. Pope Clement St. Alexis was actually sung by a castrato. Later, the church decided that no clergy from popes to lowly priests could be represented on stage at all, and the reenactment of church ceremonies was out of the question. This came to a head during the Reformation in England, where the new Protestant church perceived a threat in these plays that promoted Catholic doctrine. So you get into politics here. Another pope, another Clement, banned opera in Rome in the 18th century because musical theater was viewed as incendiary, arousing the passions. This ban, of course, was a problem for composers who reveled in magnificent marriages, funerals, and church ceremonies. Thus, the many notaries or clergy stand-ins that appear in opera from these years For instance, Romeo and Juliet could not be married by a priest or a monk or a friar on stage. So the wedding happens off stage, which sort of misses Shakespeare's point. (laughs) In Attila, when Pope Leo confronts Attila in an attempt to save Rome, a successful attempt because he was the Pope, the Pope could not be shown. So he was called an ancient Roman instead. And this made a nonsense of the plot. It made no sense. We have come a very long way since then to the 20th century in which Wagner revealed the entire sacrament of the Eucharist on stage in Parsifal. So things do evolve and change. For a time in the 17th century, oratorios and cantatas were the connecting link between sung plays in church and opera. Um, Handel was tired of the hysteria that was opera in the 17th century in London, With ongoing wars between the castrati, the divas, and opera managements, he got so sick of it that he decided he would stop writing operas and turn to oratorios, which were performed in churches then during the liturgical year, but in a concert-style manner without the histrionics of singers or clergy. Out of this frustration, of course, came the magnificent Messiah whose hallelujah chorus is as glorious a piece of music as you'll find in any opera. While Handel, Scarlatti, Scarlatti and others changed gear over going to oratorio, they still continued to write impassioned arias, thinly disguised as allegorical tales within a church setting. But by now the paths were beginning to separate, Oratorio and cantatas were performed primarily in churches or concert halls, and opera played in theaters. Following the restrictions of the church, censorship then came into being, often crippling the creative impulses of the great composers, Verdi, of course, comes to mind. He was constantly fighting the censors. And it wasn't just the church, but the state as well, that dictated what could and could not be shown on stage. So it was a rocky, rough road that opera had in the early days. Long before Christianity attempted to influence the theater, however, there was another quasi-religious option, the placing of an opera in a pagan setting. In pagan religions, religious rituals were central to the lives of the people. They take us all the way back. So let's start here with these non-traditional faiths, which became the subject matter of so many operas. Norma is a high priestess who prays to the Celtic goddess of the moon. Norma's pronouncements dictated how the people should live. She was a druidess. She had to be a virgin. And she must die when she reveres that not only has she loved the Roman Polione, but she is the mother of his children. This is one of Bellini's best-known bel canto arias, sung here by Sonia yoncheva in a Royal Opera House Covent Garden production. Prayers abound in opera, and this is definitely a prayer, albeit a pagan one, to the goddess of the moon. French repertoire is filled with churches, temples, convents, holy places, priests, and their devotees. Both of Delibes' Lakme and Massene's pearlfishers focus on exotic lands with consecrated Brahman priestesses who are sworn to celibacy on pain of death if they break their vows. Lakme, of course, is set in India in the Hindu temple of Brahma. Nilakantha, the high priest, is infuriated that he has been forbidden by the British Raj to practice his ancient religion. So when his daughter, a deified priestess, Lakme, falls in love with a British officer, it can only end in tragedy and she dies. Bizet's Pearl Fisher also focuses on a Brahmin princess, this time in Ceylon. Leila has been dedicated to Brahma and invited to pray for the pearl fishers in their perilous task of diving for pearls. Leila is loved by not one but two men. She loves Nadir and is found out and must also die for breaking her vows. These operas in exotic sen- settings were very appealing to audiences of the late 19th century. Bizet, the composer, however, didn't buy into the vogue of writing operas based on religious themes in the mid-1880s. He is reported to have said, The Academy asked me to compose religious music. All right, I'll do something religious, pagan religious, to tell the truth I am more pagan than Christian. So he composed the Perfishers. This young, passionate French composer also said, as a musician, I tell you, tell you that if you were to suppress adultery, fanaticism, crime, evil, and the supernatural, there would no longer be the means for writing one note of opera. <laughs> Verdi chose a similar exotic setting when he composed Aida, placing the action in ancient Egypt amidst Egyptian gods with a high priest, Ramphis. One entire scene, we heard a little of it, is devoted to the consecration of Radames before the temple before battle in the temple of Vulcan. An offstage priestess sings an invocation. The vestal virgins dance to flutes and pizzicato strings, and I have a personal connect with this piece because in my youth a little while ago <laughs> in London, I trained as a ballet dancer and danced in this particular scene at Sadler's Wells Theatre a few years ago. It was wonderful to be part of that. And I think I fell in love with opera as much as I fell in love with ballet. But ballet was the way for me to go, not to sing. Anyway, let me play you a little of the dance scene as they prepare Radame's for going to battle. was always such an important integral part of uh, opera and sadly for a while it sort of dropped out of, of, of favor, I suppose. There were two reasons. One was that uh, operas were running too long and our attention span wasn't as good in, as it might be now. Uh, so the first thing that got cut, got cut was the ballet always. I'm so happy that now dances come back, and not just ballet, but all the various different forms. I love the Egyptian feel of this. It really sets the stage and the scene for what's to come. It's interesting to note in the operas I've just mentioned, these pagan operas, the women always come to disastrous ends. Ritual death, which was orchestrated by the high priests of their respective religions. An opera that crosses the line between the pagan and the Christian, however, is Thais. Thais was a courtesan worshipped as a goddess in 4th century Egypt. Her only allegiance was to Venus, the goddess of love. She revels in riches and wealthy lovers, yet with all this luxury, she is not happy. This is actually, the story is based on a true story that comes from a book by Anatole France and an opera by Jules Massenet in which a courtesan becomes a saint and the man who brings about her redemption loses himself. I'm going to share with you the back story uh, that Massenet didn't tell in the opera. Imagine this. Put yourself in the place and mind of Thais, a beautiful courtesan in Alexandria, <clears throat> Egypt in the fourth century. You are born to abusive parents who run a bar for sailors in the port. Your parents beat you. You steer from the nice sailor's laps on whose laps you sit. You learn to steal from them in order to get food. You sleep in a stable with animals. There is a black Nubian slave called Ames who is kind to you. He teaches you about Jesus and Christianity, and one day he wraps you in his robe and takes you to the catacombs where you are baptized, the most wonderful moment of your life. But soon after Ames is crucified for his faith, at this time Christians were still persecuted and killed. You, Thais, are left alone, 11 years old. A woman sees you in the streets and takes you in, trains you in the performance arts portraying the goddesses of antiquity, trains you in the arts of love, and you become a prostitute in your early teens." You escape her clutches thanks to your beauty and many wealthy men who make you their own. You become a celebrity as an actress and a courtesan sought after by the most influential men of Alexandria, but you are not happy. One day, a Cenobite, a monk from the desert, appears at your palatial mansion and tells you, leave it all behind, the wealth, the adulation, the glory, and become a bride of Christ. In spite of yourself, you do just that. Give it all up and follow the monk, your holy father, who leads you across the blazing desert until you arrive at the convent of Albine, who is a daughter of the Caesars. The monk bids you farewell and you join the nuns and endure extreme suffering and penance, but your soul rejoices. For three months, you're incarcerated in a narrow cell, from which you emerge transformed and transfigured, ready to face your maker. You die in bliss, and later are canonized as a saint, as Saint Thais, or Thais the harlot, as the Eastern Orthodox Church named you. You were a kind of Mary Magdalene. Your savior was a tormented monk. Yours is a true story. Now, what about Athenaeo, the other half of this mesmerizing tale whose story intersected with Thais's for a few glorious days before their paths separated forever? Athenaeo was the son of a noble, influential family in Alexandria, and he and Thais were about the same age. As a youth, he was spoiled and exposed to the many delights the city offered a young man. He lived a life of mild dissipation. One day in his teens, he went to the theater in Alexandria to see a famous actress of renowned beauty called Thais. He later went to her door, but was turned away. After that, he became a monk, a cenobite in the desert north of Alexandria. At night, he is tormented by visions of Thais as he remembered her. And one morning, wakens and determines to go to Alexandria to convert her and save her soul. He goes to a friend of his youth, Nicias, who it turns out is Tyus' current lover. Nicias is generous. He has Athenae clothed appropriately to be introduced to her. The monk goes to her house and condemns her hedonistic lifestyle, telling her she is a sinner who must repent. He arrives at a time when Thais is doing some soul-searching of her own, as the holy man appears and offers her eternal happiness. Thais agrees to follow him, gives up her possessions and burns her palace to follow the man who will lead her to salvation and eternal life. Atenel has succeeded. The courtesan leaves with him on a torturous journey across the burning desert to a distant convent. When Mother Albine and the nuns approach, the monk hands Thais over. As he bids her farewell, he realizes he will never see her again. When he does return months later and just moments before her death, he implores her to live, to love him, while she sees only heaven opening up. So in, in this tale, two suffering souls meet. They embrace and part ways the sinner becomes a saint and the holy man loses his faith this is the ecstasy and the irony of Thais, the dichotomy between the sacred and the profane and the cut i'm going to show you now is from the final scene of this opera with thomas hampson and the great rené fleming listen closely here for the meditation the famous meditation that is the music running through her heart and soul as she is wondering how she can turn her life around. Stuff. <laughs> really incredible. I loved Renee in that role. She was so beautiful as, uh, as Thais. Now, from here, I'd like to move on to the religious struggle of conscience of three men in three outstanding operas Thomas Beckett in Murder in the Cathedral, the struggle between King Philip II of Spain and the Grand Inquisitor in Verdi's Don Carlo. And then move on to Puccini and his tale of Stefalio, a Protestant minister whose very calling is questioned when he discovers his wife's infidelity. So, first, to Murder in the Cathedral, La Sassanio nella Cattedrale, the original, a title by Ildebrando Bizetti, which premiered in 1958 at La Scala. Have any of you seen this? Have many of you seen Look, is that's amazing. Not, they need to do that piece here. And by the time I'm finished with you in this, we can all lobby for it. It's an amazing piece. Um, and this is an opera, even though it was premiered in 58, 1958, there's no way it can be categorized as a contemporary opera. <clears throat> the story as such is very simple. The setting is Canterbury Cathedral in England at the time when the Archbishop Thomas Beckett Returns after a seven-year exile in France. Becket had been King Henry the Second's right-hand adviser as the Lord Chancellor of England. But Henry and Becket fell out when Becket became the archbishop, the head of the church in England, and warred with Henry, insisting he only answered to a higher power to God and not to the king. In the play on which the opera is based, T.S. Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral, Eliot wanted to focus on Beckett's spiritual struggle, on his death and his martyrdom. The year is 1170. In Eliot's words, the time has moved from, quote, golden October to somber November to darkest December. The new year waits, breathless waits, whispers in darkness. The air is filled with foreboding. Becket returns knowing his death at the hands of the king's knights is imminent after Henry had cried out in a famous line, will no one rid me of this troublesome priest? Pizzetti's opera has been brought back to life by perhaps the world's greatest bass of our time, certainly in my book, Ferruccio Furlanetto, who sang the Archbishop in La in 2009, and he sang it again for the San Diego Opera in 2016. I've been able to get a clip from a very insightful TV documentary about that production. It's introduced by Ian Campbell, the director, and with Ferruccio Furlanetto, who sang Beckett in that production and afterwards I I talked to uh, Ferruccio and I'll tell you what he said but let's watch first some of this documentary of Murder in the Cathedral.
4: The great thing about Eliot's play is that he has clearly done research in putting it together in the first place because many of the references in the text, even some of the things Beckett says, are extant. There is uh, written documentation of what Beckett said in many circumstances. Eliot picked that up and in putting the opera libretto together the librettist who was Pizzetti kept it so that um, it is very close to the Eliot, the Eliot is close to history and therefore I feel very comfortable with it as a kind of a history. It's not moment by moment but the ingredients are what actually happened. It's a wonderful opera where themes are concerned because it has not only the political debates going on about the power between the king and the archbishop, but there's soul searching on the part of the archbishop himself. Beckett is approached by four tempters. They're not real people, they're in his head. He's debating with himself as to what he could do. He could overpower the king. He could become chancellor again. He could become friends with the king. one of the tempters says become a martyr and Beckett's response is how dare you tell me what I've been thinking about myself and this is evidence that he's arguing in his own mind
0: somehow to show what is happening in a human mind and in this piece you have this possibility in the first act when he is dealing with his own his own thoughts the temptations are nothing but his own thoughts and uh, it's a very challenging situation for a for a singing actor let's say therefore this is by far the reason why I am so attracted by by Thomas Beckett
5: Yenda tergo, in avertita, el albizioe. En il peccato cresce, en il peccato cresce, forche l'elfare
2: il me. It's beautiful, isn't it? Especially if you're seeing it for the first time. This is a opera for our time, I think these issues of truth and fidelity and uh, honor, uh, all of that. It's, it's amazing. Um, I, I was very fortunate. I thought, uh, if I'm going to talk about this opera, which I actually went to San Diego to see, little knowing that years later here I would be talking about it, and I thought I really need to talk to Ferruccio folanetti so I was able to reach him. He was singing King Philip in L.A. a couple of months back, and I was so hoping he would call me and I'd get his voice for you, But he didn't. He sent me pages back actually uh, on an email, so I'll I'll share some of that with you um, of what he said in addition to what he says here. This opera is an amazing, dramatic piece of theater. The character of Beckett has been very important in theater and movies, and it works magnificently in opera thanks to the text, which is very faithful to Eliot and the declamatory style that Pizzetti requires, Uh, remembering that Eliot used actually some of the words of Beckett himself in the play. Pizzetti's masterly writing creates a magnificent piece of theater. From the beginning, I understood Beckett would be part of my career. I've always been privileged in acting roles in my artistic life, and Beckett is absolutely sensational from this point of view. Every time I had a chance to sing Beckett, I always found something new, some new color, some new intention. This is luckily happening for me in all the major intense roles I sing, King Philip or Boris. There is never, ever an ending moment regarding interpretation. It's ongoing. That continues to develop together with the voice with your own life. Once I am diving into a score and a sublime role such as Philip II, Boris, or even Don Quixote, I let the music and the word drive my emotions, my voice, my sensibility through the most honest and genuine filtering of the score. I do not do anything in particular. I just want to be a filter between the composer and the listeners. The character of Beckett is masterfully created by Bizetti, though his writing is always demanding from every point of view. Even when vocally it seems calm, there are other kinds of difficulties to overcome, like the right color, the right softness of the voice. Without any doubt, for a singer, this role of Beckett is a final target. It would be a complete mission impossible for a young artist or an inexperienced singer-actor. The declamatory style of Pizzetti in the Greek-style chorus works well because what is happening on stage is close to Greek tragedy. An opera like *Assassiano* is a fundamental vehicle for suddenly bringing the audience, whether it is prepared or not, into a full immersion in history. And through history, it fulfills the need to deepen your knowledge of a specific time, events, and lives. You have learned more about Henry II and Thomas of Becket in the last 10 minutes than you may have ever done, unless you studied him in English classes. <laughs> Religious people often hide themselves, he went on, in some kind of fanaticism. We see it every day around the world, even now. Becket knew that the king, once his friend, would never accept his new ideas regarding sovereignty between the kingdom and the church. Beckett's destiny was somehow already decided, The choice of martyrdom was for him the only possibility to continue the struggle after his death. Religion has followed humanity from its birth, he said, giving man faith, hope, goodness, as well as death, genocide, and murder. How many people have lost their lives since the beginning of time in the name of some divinity? Nothing changes, nothing will. I asked Ferruccio about his playing the role of Beckett in Canterbury Cathedral. When uh, he's been trying to do this for years, apparently, and he he replied, "I love this line. Unfortunately, the dream of singing Beckett in Canterbury Cathedral did not materialize yet, but the project is very much alive. Hope is the last to die." Mm -hmm. That's an incredible line (laughs) from this great singer. So now I'd like to explore another great operatic role that is loosely based on a real-life character, King Filippo II in Verdi's Don Carlo, another role for which Ferruccio Furlanetti is renowned. This time, however, he is not playing a man of the church, but playing an adversary of the church as King Philip. The scene that concerns us today with religion and opera is the pivotal scene in the opera between the king and the grand inquisitor. This time is the early 16th century. The setting is Spain in S. L. S. Gurial, the king's palace. Verdi saw this impressive palace and reported, it is severe and terrible, like the savage monarch who built it, Philip II. The depiction of Philip in the opera is mainly fictional, as is the account of his son Don Carlo, who did not have an affair with Elizabeth de Valois, Philip's wife. This was, however, the time of the Spanish Inquisition and the burning of heretics. The grand inquisitor, a prince in every sense of the word, was feared by the people. He lords it over the king, or he tries to. Now, this is not unlike Becket, who defined Henry in the other opera and also died as a result. The difference, of course, is that Becket was a man of great integrity, truly a man of God. While the Grand Inquisitor makes a mockery of all that Beckett stood for, Verdi, who was always ambivalent on the subject of the Catholic Church, resented outside control or interference in his work. And he presents Don Carlo in Don Carlo a corrupt, narrow minded cardinal who's only interested in self aggrandizement, cruelty, and control. Verdi's anti clericalism may stem from a a fun anecdote from his past when, as a child, he was an altar boy at Mass every day, and one day, daydreaming and listening to the organ music during the service, the priest noticed his inattention to his duties and pushed the boy who fell down the altar steps. Mary Jane Phillips Mance tells the story in her Verdi biography. Apparently, the seven year old Verdi, on falling, cursed the priest, Dio Tomanda Sajeta, may God strike you with lightning. And lo and behold, eight years later, that same priest was struck by lightning and died. (laughs) Verdi loved to tell this story later in life. In Don Carlo, Verdi draws attention to the conflicts between public and private life, between the church and the state, between despotism and liberalism, Roman Catholicism, and Protestantism. The scene I'm going to show you, this pivotal one, between Philip and the Grand Inquisitor is a magnificent duet between two great bases. It's unique for that too. The Grand Inquisitor berates the king for having killed Posa, who is the king's confidant, before the Grand Inquisitor could torture and get his hands on him. Now the Grand Inquisitor wants Carlo, Philip's son, handed over for treason. A troubled Philip acquiesces, singing, Can you create a new religion that supports the bloody murder of a son? To which the Grand Inquisitor replies scornfully, To expiate eternal righteousness, God's own son died on the cross. The scene ends when the Grand Inquisitor sweeps out and Philip mourns, Must the throne always give way to the altar? And in this clip, you'll see Ferruccio Fulanetto as King Philip and Eric Halverson as the Cardinal in a Royal Opera House production. <laughs>
5: Y lo trovo
2: stuff. (laughs) The imperial censorship, of course, shook their heads at Verdi's satirical rendition of the Grand Inquisitor and said, taken as a satire on religious absolutism, this scene might find favor in the classic land of reform, but will it be the same for us? But Verdi wasn't always so provocative when it came to the church and its officials In Stifiglio, he focuses on another aspect of one man's struggle of conscience, that of Stifiglio, the German Protestant minister whose wife had committed adultery. This subject matter was a stretch, I promise you, for Verdi's Italian audiences, starting with the fact that the minister was a married man. (laughs) Their priests did not marry. The plot works its way through Stefalio's return home when Lina, his wife's affair, is revealed. <clears throat> Stanka, her father, tries to hide it. However, finally, Stifelio comes near to killing Lina's lover, but stops when he hears the choir of his church. He leaves the scene cursing Lina. He cannot forgive her. He enters the church where the congregation is singing of mercy as the organ plays. A repentant Lena and her father enter. Stifalio is shaken as he mounts the pulpit. Have courage, an old friend advises him. Open the Bible and the Lord will give you inspiration. Stifalio opens the book and begins to read the story of the Magdalene, the woman taken in sin. Lena holds her breath, waiting for condemnation, but Stifalio reads on. Let him among you who is, out, is without sin cast the first stone. And the woman rose, pardoned. Perdonata. Lina reaches for Stifelio as he repeats, Perdonata, God has said it, as the chorus echoes his words and the curtain falls. And here the great Jose Carrera sings Stifelio. Oh
5: Lord.
0: o vostro suoi
1: That was lecturer Desiree Mays exploring the connection between religion and opera. Be sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera, the Metropolitan Opera Guild, and Opera News on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'll be back with you for part two of this lecture series in the coming weeks. Until then, I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.